1: Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. Today's special conversant is Elika Imanaga, who is a university student. She's taking a gap year, she calls it, but she's also been writing on her substack, cheekily titled Deranged Ranting, which is found at rhymeslikedimes.substack.com. Look into the description for the link as rhymes is spelled R-I-M-E-S. I stumbled upon her article examining the usefulness of the argument around CRT and education when the education system is failing despite what sort of higher order ideologies are being promulgated through it. And I really enjoyed how tight her article was, how well researched it was, and how clear. And I just had this intuition that she would be fun to speak to. And I was in no ways. Disappointed. I am very proud to be the first person to debut her into this particular taco sphere in which I inhabit. And taco, again, there should be a link in the description, but I'm not going to put it in there, is spelled T-A-L-K-O, talco sphere. So without further ado, here is Elika Imanaga. What does it mean? It means
0: uh, pear blossom in Japanese. So um, in Japan, there's just a tendency to name your Uh, daughter after whatever month they were born in or whatever flower is blooming in that month and mine was pear (laughs) blossom so i was named that
1: were you born in japan
0: yeah my parents are my mom is japanese and my dad's uh well my biological father's british jamaican so i was born in japan and then my mom remarried And and american
1: how long have you been in the states then
0: um i moved here when I was about six months old but I would go back and forth every year and I'm a Japanese citizen too so
1: I detect no accent
0: yeah I went through the k-12 edgy like schooling system here so my English is pretty strong
1: and uh how's your Japanese
0: my Japanese is uh definitely not as strong as my um English but I did take Japanese in university so it's It's, it's functional.
1: Yeah. Do you, do you foresee yourself, uh, setting up camp in Japan or, uh, uh stick in America? Probably,
0: not. probably not. I don't think, I don't think I really like the work, um, the working world there, the way that works, not really something that interests me. Hmm. I, I definitely value kind of like a lot of the liberalism here. So I'd, ra- I'd much rather live and work here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As long as we can keep that liberalism, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll be good yeah what what do you want to do uh career-wise
0: well before i had been kind of convinced that i'd be going into academia so you know i am in a university program for international studies which is kind of like um interdisciplinary geography it's like we're learning about um, politics sociology economics um so and so forth and I thought that then I would probably continue into working into working in the private sector. So like, you know, maybe like NGO work or public sector work, working for the state or, you know, um, but Hmm. the current conditions of that sort of work. So like the social conditions that orient that work is something that's like making it very unappealing. So, you know, for example, I had done a program at the UN, um, uh, my second year, I think, of university, where I was taking courses actively there, and um, you know, we ran into some like there were so many rules for how we were allowed to engage with um, you know certain teachers or diplomats that would come into our courses because to some degree, like we were expected to be remain um, culturally sensitive or um, you know world worldly cosmopolitan, keep like maintain those. Uh, that maintain that sort of appearance, but that got in the way of a lot of critical discussion. So an example would be that I had an Andorran um, diplomat as a teacher for a course on women's rights, international international women's rights, um, specifically on uh, the UN's right to, right to protect, which is on um, protecting women's rights in times of war. Um, and for whatever reason they had A lot of Saudi Arabians advising on uh, the right to protect which is kind of like it's it's a bit funny considering the human rights record of the Saudi Arabia like of Saudi Arabia and like a lot of these Middle Eastern countries so it's like you know my my diplomat professor was definitely she was definitely critical of the fact that they were allowed to advise on it but she couldn't really do much aside from complain to her students. Hmm. And, you know, that was definitely something that made me reconsider whether or not I wanted to head into this direction work-wise, because I don't know if I could, I could do that. I don't think I could.
1: M- maintain diplomacy?
0: Yeah, in, in, hmm. in light of obvious discrepancies, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I could promote ideas that were in conflict with the reality of certain situations like you know working on policy with uh individuals that are clearly not interested in the same um diplomatic goals as you are i guess for example like for example
1: mm-hmm.
0: sorry i'm a bit nervous so i hope i'm articulating that well
1: you No, know, you're doing great and uh well the nervousness will just disapparate um as time goes on but uh the isn't that diplomacy though is working with people with different goals than you and, and seeing how to come out on top of the compromise that you're going to have to make no matter what.
0: I think so. Yes. Only to the extent that, um, that, that focus on diplomacy isn't dilatory to the goals of whatever, um, diplomatic project you're working on. So I think, um, like say example, you messaged me to talk about critical race theory And it's sort of like that, that itself as like a sort of like critical theory is entrenching itself in the way that diplomacy is working, I guess. So the way that one might speak to someone of a different um, cultural background in diplomatic discourse, the way in which we kind of like concede to certain cultural differences is changing, I guess, quite rapidly. And I guess I just don't understand diplomacy when it's defined as something. Uh, it's defined as just simply getting along with others,
1: okay. I guess, if that makes sense. What What is diplomacy then in your uh, perspective?
0: I think that diplomacy is seeking out um, mutual goals and trying to facilitate compromise between two parties, seeking out those mutual goals. But the problem is when so concepts of um, certain progressive ideas are antithetical to diplomatic goals or the um, achievement of diplomatic goals, if that makes sense, because it relies on the denial of certain like incompatibilities between diplomatic parties. So let's say, for example, in the case that I was talking about, at least with the UN, and that you had... Someone from a more liberal European country trying to make a diplomatic agreement or some kind of decision with someone from a more socially conservative country on something that is objectively socially progressive, which is the right to protect policy that the UN kind of like promotes or um, published. Um, And the fact that you're not able to kind of like point out the obvious discrepancy in entrance interest between those diplomatic parties, I think, is kind of an issue. If that makes sense.
1: Okay. So, how does, how do certain progressive values undermine the ability to locate and discuss areas of disagreement? Uh, is is it forming formal blind spots? Is that what you're proposing?
0: Yeah, that that's that's a good way to put it. Forming blind spots. Um, I think that it makes it difficult for people to. In the interest of um, preserving kind of like what progressives would see as sort of cultural sensitivity, they're incapable of pinpointing actual blind spots in any given, like, reasoning, if that makes sense, or, you know, so, like, with the right to protect thing, it would be the fact that, like, there you have countries that have a terrible track record on, you know, human rights in writing policy Specifically on international human rights and you're not able to kind of point out that sort of like Fundamental contradiction and in interest
1: Because of a progressive ish uh, attitude of cultural sensitivity. Yes, so ultimate relativism Yes, that's and,
0: exactly it and and un- like uh, another example would be the fact like Let's say for example with um, pandemic policy um, in the initial months of the out- pandemic outbreak, there was a huge focus on cultural se- sensitivity relative to um, um, Chinese Americans in the country, despite that being completely antithetical to actual policy that would have been effective in um, limiting the spread of the virus. So let's say like strict immigration policy at the onset of the outbreak, that was something that was con- seen at- considered culturally insensitive or racist by many progressives, and that really delayed effective policy decisions. Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: that would be like an example of that at like a more domestic level at an international level that can be seen in human rights um, agreements that have parties um, that are not particularly well representative of those values.
2: Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah. And that's like kind of an
1: issue. Sorry if this uh, question hits hard. I don't mean it uh, to hit hard, but if people like you absent themselves from these different institutions because they don't want to deal with these blind spots, then these blind spots won't ever go away. If they're, if people of your position aren't in the sausage mill, the sausage isn't going to be made any differently than it's being made.
0: I guess the fear is that um, people like me who question sort of like progressive static status quo, the progressive status quo in thinking, or seek out um, these blind spots, I worry that those ideas aren't very popular right now, if that makes sense in mainstream academia. Mm -hmm. There's not really much that you can do. Like, let's say, for example, I I know on your channel you cover the Evergreen State College uh, situation quite extensively, and in a situation like that, even someone of, you know, like, Brett Weinstein's qualifications was not able to speak up about what he saw as, like, extreme inequity at the university, you know? And, mm-hmm. like, the whole sausage mill concept, like, it makes sense in that, like, if people who are critical of these systems, like, stay in the system, perhaps the system can change. But what if we're completely rejected from the system, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Like, we're not able to be honest in our, um, in our thoughts.
1: Okay. So there's one point of view that says that, or there's an analogy about the long march through the institutions. So Mm -hmm. if we consider the current manifestations of a certain strain of progressivism that is dominant now, it wasn't always dominant, and it took a long time to take over the institutions, and it is taking over institutions. Uh, There's two alternatives to combat that, it's to make alternative decision, uh institutions, mm-hmm. or to take a 20-year uh, plan and do a long march or long remarch uh, to take back the institution. What would you think is the best thing to do uh, as somebody who's critical of this ideology? What, what's the most fruitful thing that you, you think you could do?
0: I think a lot of it, I mean, coming from the perspective of someone who, uh, you know, I was in high school when I think the real ideological takeover happened with like the, uh, election of Trump in 2015, 2016. Um, and if I have to be honest, I think that as a teenager, I was becoming inundated into progressive ideas or progressive thinking, um, through like starting in high school. So I think that a lot of it is, is less so focusing on elite institutions, um, and focusing more on kind of like focusing on adolescent development and encouraging adolescents to be critical of the information that they receive, hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Because as a teenager, I was really encouraged to kind of support liberal progressive beliefs. Um, you know, especially for me, I, I didn't come from, I didn't grow up in a urban area. I grew up in a kind of like a urban, like a suburban rural sprawl, you know, like there a lot of people in my city growing up, they worked in the agricultural sector and stuff like that, so for me, success was this cosmopolitan, you know, like going to New York, going to university, getting a degree, working in like a really impressive, like, you know, getting a really impressive public or private sector career, you know, and I thought the only way I could achieve that was believing in progressive liberalism, but, you know, that's not, you know, clearly I graduated high school, went through university, or I'm going through university still, and see that that's not, it's not all what I was shown, like, it, it's not everything it was shown to me as being, I guess. Hmm. You know, like, you start to question the sort of, like, contradictions or, like, the sort of, like, logical gaps.
1: So, what, is an, or what, what is one of the first gaps or contradictions that you uh, kind of jilted you?
0: Um, I think... I honestly think the first one had to be going to a gay straight alliance meeting in university. like during my orientation, I went to one. and I the reason why I started questioning it was because of how uncomfortable a lot of the uh, students were made um, because they started out the meeting by asking everyone what our favorite anthems were. And I you know, I only went as like a straight ally. I, you know I don't identify as in as LGBTQ, but I thought that that was really on the nose and a bit offensive to assume that you know because these students identify as you know um, LGBTQ, they somehow are inundated in like LGBTQ culture and would thus have you know a preferred like gay anthem what, if that makes sense
1: what, what, I'm sorry the only thing I can think of is YMCA maybe a lady gaga uh, tune yes. are, are there is there like a, a list of 20 anthems that you can select from?
0: They they had them
2: oh,
1: like, well, there know,
0: we go. I, yeah, I, I had gone with a friend and she didn't have one and she she herself identified as um, You know gay and she she didn't have one. she had no idea what to say and she was put on the spot and felt so embarrassed You know, and I knew that I had also bisexual friends who had gone to the club and felt they felt alienated because um, a lot of the discourse made it out as though they benefited from appearing straight and that sort of kind of like nitpicking in identity, really made me begin to doubt things.
1: Hmm. Do, do you do you consider yourself to have a racial identity? Yes. And how does that uh, how does that operate in the world for you? Um,
0: I think I think I'm in a weird spot where because I'm Blasian, so I'm mixed with black and Asian. I am not i mean like i think every mixed person has this problem where you're not fully considered one or the other and that really informs my perspective on say like minority issues because i don't really see the black community as being wholly um exempt from being racist and that's something that i think puts me in a really bad position just ideologically already you know like i've experienced a lot of anti-asian racism from black people growing up, and I experienced a lot of anti-black racism from Asian people growing up. It wasn't, like, racism wasn't something unique to each group, if that makes sense. Like, they both were willing to be, they were both willing to see me as, like, sort of, like, an alien in their community or some other, because Mm -hmm. I wasn't fully one or the other, if that makes sense.
1: How how have you navigated going from that kind of that cultural conditioning and that cultural response to individual, uh, relationships? Was that a the big detriment in developing friendships, uh, with individuals?
0: Um, I'd say in early childhood, yes, but a lot of it also had to do, um, I, I think I had really good parents too that were really, um, If I were to take on some sort of like belief that my race was a first and foremost concern of my identity, they would have shot that down immediately. You know, my my stepfather, who is an African-American, grew up in a segregated America. And most of his like, you know, obviously, like he experienced racism. You know, he'd been like wrongly, you know, um, like he had been arrested just on the basis of his race before. But I don't think that he encouraged me to then perceive myself on a racial basis solely Hmm. if anything he thought that that was the reason why he experienced discrimination prior to desegregation was that he was only he was seeing himself and the rest of the world was seeing him as exclusively his race and it's and you know i that was really beaten into me as a kid that i'm more than that Hmm. and i I don't think that's encouraging um i don't think that sort of individualism is being encouraged in people anymore
1: There's evidence that it's actively being, uh, as you say, beaten out of them um, in in a way. So what is your starting point then? uh, Your conception of where do you start? What do you base everything on for yourself? If it's not race, uh, but there are these identity issues. What's the foundation uh, that you build your conception of yourself from?
0: I think I define myself academically, first and foremost, Hmm. um, as in... I've always done decently well in school and I've prided myself on being able to think quite well and I'd like to continue to de- define myself by my thoughts and opinions on certain things or mm. subjects. I'd rather I, I feel largely uncomfortable when like say my race is set to be um I guess like some overwhelming element of my identity. I think it informs a lot of my beliefs and perspectives, but I really would rather not be defined exclusively by it. Mm-hmm. You know, if I were to be referred to as the Blasian girl, I probably wouldn't be very happy with that.
1: That sounds at once like a slur and, and something fun to say, but I don't think I, I, I should be saying that. So I'm not going to say that.
0: Not sure either. I, I'm not really sure what the domain of like, okay. Language is in, anymore. I'm not sure what we can <laughs> and can't say. <laughs>
1: So, speaking about thinking and wanting to um, append your identity, or at least your social identity, to your thoughts, you started a sub-stack. There's not that many articles on it. There is one on... Um, parsing through CRT, uh, the CRT discussion on a kind of a national level, Republican versus Democrat. But there's mm-hmm. also this really fascinating essay uh, that I didn't get a chance to read all the way through, but it was really a fascinating take on time and how conceptions of time inform ideas of conservatism and progressivism. What caused you to, what, where did that idea germinate from?
0: Um, well, a lot of it had to do with trying to understand why people connected fascism to trump trump style populism um and that was something that had always confused me and i got really interested in learning more about fascism and fascist beliefs and hyper conservatism and like a lot of like new right beliefs like that entire like Mm -hmm. sphere of like right-wing ideology because i don't think that the liberal definition of like you know Blanket fascism was very accurate or productive. And then when I got into reading about it, I was introduced to more of like more discourse and more um, ideas proliferated by, say, like Steve Bannon, who was a really major advisor to the Trump administration and early on and a book that he was a huge proponent of was the fourth turning by uh, Neil Howe and I think oh I don't remember the first name, but it was just uh, Strauss and Howe. A good way to describe it would be that historical events are continually associated with recurring generational personas and each generational persona unleashes a new sort of political era that lasts around 20 to 25 years, which is kind of like the average length of time someone might have a political career or a significant like political career. So let's say for example, you know, Gen X comes to adulthood and then they make decisions, political decisions for the rest of the country for the next 20 to 25 years and then after that you have a reactionary movement of the same generational cycle. So I think an interesting one would probably be, so the baby boomer generation, most of their politics are a reaction to what their parents kind of like um, inundated them
1: into. What's the climate that you're, or the values that you see a lot of your cohort reacting to?
0: I think a lot of it, especially, you know, talking to, let's say my younger siblings, for example, like they are beginning to react to, younger kids are beginning to react to, I think, millennial beliefs, as in like millennial beliefs in progressivism and liberalism. And I think a good example would probably be Nick Fuentes, who's a really major figure on the, um, extreme right. Uh, I think that as much hate as he gets for being so reactionary, I think he is a product of, uh, of a new generation reacting to millennial progressivism. And I think it was an inevitable thing.
1: Hmm. Do you buy into, or how much do you buy into a overreactionary, um, movement, uh, like a a pendulum that that's going to swing too far the other way or something like that. Do you see that these things kind of end up stabilizing themselves or do you foresee or worry of some sort of crisis state? um,
2: Well,
0: in the the fourth turning, the whole logic is that that fourth turning uh, it works sort of in uh, four generational cycles. And then there's a crisis that re does Mm. the entire uh, paradigm, the national paradigm Mm. so i think that what will happen is that we will likely see another major crisis you know i mean like there you can make the supposition that the current pandemic and all of the political fallout that's um come to light because of it is the current crisis that my generation is living through but i'm not really sure
1: what's your perspective on the unrest of 2020 uh that seemed to involve a lot of people your
0: age Uh, I found it really frustrating I think I that's probably the first thing that comes to mind when thinking of it I thought that the social unrest was sort of media driven and I think that a lot of people my age I mean people my age spend most of their time online you know we're preoccupied by our phones so I think that a lot of it was built on sensationalism or online sensationalism and you had people acting out what they saw online. And that, that was like really actually quite scary.
1: Hmm. Yeah. There was no, uh, I, it was, it was a pretty phenomenal feedback loop of mm-hmm. just replicating, replicating, replicating a, a certain sort of behavior. Have you found any drive to speak to or for what, um, This is a big question, so it it might be stupid, but do you have a drive to get the bearings on what's going on and and enough tools to start to speak for and to your generation or or what America uh, should be focusing on? And and if so, what do you think you would like to push into the conversation at this point in time? Hmm.
0: I would say that I am very interested in like critically analyzing what's going on, especially relative to how it affects people my my age. Um, and I've written a bit, especially during the um, initial protests. I think the initial ones, they happened in New York uh, in the summer of 2020. Uh, and I'd been writing a little bit about that and published on my old Medium account on um, the sort of like logical incoherence of a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests and stuff like that. But uh, one big thing is uh, it's a it's a little bit difficult to kind of like get to get i or to disseminate ideas, especially new ones or ones that might be controversial now, because I think that uh, the entire in industry for academic ideas has become like very commercialized. So like, what is the most most the most marketable marketable ideas tend to get them gain the most traction, and certain ideas just aren't marketable. So I don't really know what to do about that. Hmm. So, for people my age, I don't really think being extremely critical of Black Lives Matter is very appealing. So, Mm -hmm. that's not really something, like, I wouldn't know what to do there. I think people who are much older than me are more inclined to hear um, criticism or, you know, contentious, like, beliefs, but people my age aren't. I don't really know what to do about that.
1: (laughs) You can always become uh, a thoughtful thought or uh, uh, some sort of intellectual influencer.
0: I could, but I feel, yeah, I could. I definitely could. There are definitely people out there that do well. But I worry that that just becomes noise
1: mm. in the entire,
0: um, like it's—it's it's noise. It's not. Pro- I don't know if it's productive.
1: Okay. So, what, what, what's something that you're toying with now? Uh, it's are you're still in university?
0: Yes, I, I'm taking a gap year.
1: Oh, so. okay uh, yeah. did it just start this past year or are you about to end it?
0: it uh, yeah, I'm about to end it. It started, um, with the onset of the pandemic because I thought that I, I just found that, um, online school didn't really, it it wasn't really productive for me. I didn't really enjoy it. And I, I didn't want to continue to pay the tuition, um, at, and get an education that I thought was, you know, incompatible with how I learn.
1: Mm. And what did you do in that gap year?
0: Mostly write. A lot of it's just writing. Um, a lot of it, uh, actually my father, like he had passed away, uh, over the pandemic. So, um, sorry, it, a lot of it was working, helping my parent, like working to help my mom out. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah.
1: And what was the writing, uh, focused on? I guess you've published some, but what, what's kind of the, what kind of voice are you, developing or what, what what genre is it very thoughtful
2: very
1: I think well it, researched the ones that i've read
0: oh thank you um i think hypercritical i think would probably be one i think the voice i'd like to have would be a point at least play devil's advocate for a lot of progressive ideas or at least be able to kind of like okay. analyze things as though i was an alien approaching this topic i guess i think a lot of um a lot of discourse between progressivism and conservatism now is coming from the perspective of someone who defines himself as either being exclusively conservative or exclusively progressive, and I think that we need a lot more people who come from the center observing things as objectively as possible. I think that bias is something that's sort of an intellectual disease right now, and it's apparent, ever so apparent in basically all facets of like academic writing or intellectual writing. It's really hard to avoid especially in a like especially now that we're living in kind of like a market that like really seeks out bias. You know, bias will make you money now. And it's I really just don't like that.
1: Hmm. How do you confront bias in yourself? How do you how do you wield it properly? Unless you're free of bias and if you are what's the trick?
0: I don't think I'm free free of bias. I think no one is, but what you can do is just remain aware of that fact, and I don't think a lot of people are willing enough to admit that. Admitting to bias is probably the first step to getting rid of bias, at least in conversation, because I think if you can admit to your biases, you're able to speak more honestly with other people. And I think a lot of people are also intolerant of critique now, especially academic critique, and laying out your insecurities and biases or um, sort of like preferences in your writing quite clearly, I think enables more comprehensive discussion of the ideas too. Hmm. As in like, I I think it's very wrong for people to kind of like present their biases as facts or present their biases as any were potentially factual or truthful, um, you know, say like potentially like meaningful, uh, like another meaningful interpretation of reality or something when it's really just bias.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, sorry.
2: No. Continue. Oh,
0: yeah, I was like an example would probably be the fact that I do have, I think, I, I try to define myself exclusively by the way I think and my ideas, but at the end of the day, I am biased towards, um, you know, like, racial sensitivity or like, um, okay. minority politics, I am sent, like, I am biased towards that as much as critical as I am of Black Lives Matter, I tend to be sympathetic to a lot of um, their cause. Uh, but hmm. that's like something I have to be able to admit to myself that I'm biased because I am non-white.
1: There might be uh incredible amount of opportunity open to one who is very critical of, uh, the, just for example, Black Lives Matter, uh, it, the manifestations of Black Lives Matter, the contradictions of the Black Lives Matter, and then salvaging the best parts of that. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the breaking down of that is going to attract a certain audience, and you'll probably lose them by the time you get to to your uh real goal but you will probably salvage a lot of people uh well you you probably will participate in the project of cleaning up uh the messiness that you see in what Mm -hmm. you are uh sympathetic to the movements that you're sympathetic to Mm
0: -hmm. like i am extremely sympathetic to the issue of police brutality in the country but i don't know if defining it on a racial basis is as accurate as Black Lives Matter activists claim it is. And that, that would be a good example. I think a lot of it has more to do with poverty. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And and that would just be an example of it. And, you know, I think we should be able to salvage that criticism of police institutions, but really try to remove the racial connotations or the racial interpretation of it all, too, because I, I just don't think that's productive. Mm. I wish, I wish we were more able to do that now.
1: And yet you said that one of your biases is racial sensitivity. Could you define that and what you think is the proper way for one to develop that and manifest that?
2: Um,
0: well, racial sensitivity is really hard to define because it means a lot of things to a lot of different people, and particularly because I'm not inclined to agree with um, the progressive definition of it, it becomes even harder to really articulate. But for me, racial sensitivity in that I am definitely one to be less um, welcoming to, say, supremacist ideas. So, you know, there's definitely like a debate, I think, in especially with like people who are free speech absolutionists as to whether or not um, there should be any sort of like legislation limiting the beliefs or behaviors or actions or assembly of people who have, you know, white supremacist beliefs and part of me wants to say that I tend part of me wants to tend to agree with the free speech absolutionists and that their rights to assemble and to um, kind of like I guess congregate on the basis of their ideas I think that that's something that should be enabled by the state and protected by the state But at the same time to me as a minority, I find that very scary so it's very hard for me to kind of like, it's hard for me to be wholly sympathetic to like, you know, let's say, for example, like white supremacy. But I also don't really think that I agree with um, the progressive take on policing it, I guess, mm-hmm. or limiting it. And that that would probably be a good example of um, my issue with defining kind of like r- racial sensitivity or what we can do to have a better sus- more racially integrated or more um, tolerant society,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but yeah, uh, to develop racial sensitivity, I think a lot of it just has to be willingness, willingness to um, be tolerant of differences or to learn about differences between one another and a lot of it's interpersonal. I think a lot of racial sensitivity a lot of racial sensitivity conversations are more about interpersonal relationships. So let's say for example, if someone were to Proliferate an idea that I thought was maybe negative about African American people or Asian people. That would be something I should speak to them about on a interpersonal basis. I don't really something. I don't really think that's something that needs to be politicized.
1: Mm. I believe it was Jonathan Haidt, uh, or maybe it was just a study that he was referencing, but he said that training and communication is actually mm-hmm. more beneficial in the work environment than training and diversity and implicit bias. Uh, yeah, communication uh, yeah. actually helps facilitate tearing down those barriers, whereas the opposite way tends to entrench uh, them, especially when you um, misuse the concepts of privilege and uh, mm-hmm. so on.
0: Are you familiar with uh, the book, um, what is it, Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier? Yeah,
1: I've had her on my channel uh, a yeah, couple times. Oh.
0: I know um, There in the introduction section of her book, she talks actually a lot about how um, people my age, around, eight, you know, 21 and under, they are losing communicative capacity. As in, we're probably one of the most poorly socialized generations, and I think it's very obvious in how the recent protests and, like, sort of, like, civil rights, like... Um, movements have been like conceptualized by people my age i think a lot of them are turning interpersonal things into political statements or some things that would should be interpersonal issues into something that needs to be legislated or something like that and i think that's very like demonstrative of like the lack of social like etiquette and social like emotional capacity people my age have Mm -hmm. everyone spends time online you know it people will prefer to People will avoid um, face-to-face contact. It's very difficult for people to actually have conversations in person or difficult conversations in person now. So, yeah, I'm not. I I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't know what's gonna come of that.
1: How have you become self-conscious, and then how do you manage your online life?
0: Oh, it's really. It's really difficult, I think, especially with the pandemic, you know, you're not able to kind of see your friends in person. So, you know, people my age, we really congregate online and I think people are end up sequestered into like really different, like sort of cliques too. Mm. And they end up in echo chambers of belief systems and, you know, agreement. You can really kind of like, um, curate who your friends are now. And that's not really, that's really not great, I think.
1: Especially when it's organized along the vector of agreement and disagreement, which is a very poor, um, bandwidth for human connection. It's just one vector.
0: I think the the amount of stress it caused for me to try to maintain friendships on the basis of like agreement and disagreement. I think that's really what broke me because I just don't, I just don't agree. I'm disagreeable. (laughs) I'm just, I have a disagreeable personality. So, you know, like a big example would be at my university, we're all, The the social expectation or the status quo at my university is to have your pronouns in your bio for all your social media to let people know that, you know, you want to normalize the um, asking of pronouns or like to normalize the whole like constructivist idea of gender identity and that, you know, you, you can't assume someone's gender. So you have to project your gender to other people with pronouns and you especially should advertise your social media as that. And I just, I don't have my pronouns on my bio, I think I am i look visibly female, I don't really think I need to define myself by that, but that automatically, I think, puts me at odds with so many people at my university without even, without even having a conversation.
1: Mm-hmm. How you do know? you, is that just a, you're willing to take that hit?
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm willing to take that hit. I don't think I, I don't think that I could sustain really good friendships with people like that anyway. So I don't worry what about if
1: your entire generation goes that way. Are you willing to just cling to us, uh, Gen Xers and, and hope for a, uh, a, a subsequent generation that, uh, will accept you on your own terms?
0: Yeah. I'll probably either just hang out with, uh, people, my mom's age or just maybe move back to more conservative country like Japan. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Like it, it's getting to the point where it's sort of like, it's, it's like insanely hard to actually navigate social relationships especially in my age group. I have friends who are still hiding who they voted for, you know? Like they're they're terrified of letting people know because they don't want them to know that they didn't vote democrat. Mm. Even mm. people who voted libertarian, they're scared.
1: Um that that is that's a powder keg if your generation is split along the visible um and very Ideological, like there's this very visible, very ideological group, and then there's this secret network group that's probably going to be growing in resentment more and more as time goes on. You, this is a bad example, but it's still kind of a a sample of your generation. Um, If you look on TikTok, there's some pretty phenomenally out there. Uh, ideas going on in a very uh, demanding tone and a very authoritarian tone. And that could cause a lot of stress just within your generation.
0: Uh, Yeah. Oh, on TikTok, I, oh my gosh, I have a memory of uh, someone, there was a male feminist account on TikTok um, and they were basically doing something virtue, like I thought was virtue signaling, like it was like a sort of unnecessary, I I hate men too sort of thing. And I think I made a joke about that. And I just got dog piled on, like by okay. like 1000s of like people my age that were like, telling me that I was like, a pick me who wanted to appeal to men by like rejecting feminist values. And all I did was just think that his video was a bit ridiculous and like excessive. And that's about it. But you know, hmm. that's the sort of environment we live like I live in. You know, people censor, people put trigger warnings in front of, like, basically everything now. Like, you can scroll on TikTok and you can find trigger warning. I talk about a dream in this video. A trigger warning. I talk about school. Like, you know, it, it, it's so hard. And I. it gets harder and harder the younger you talk to, like, the younger groups you talk to, you know. Mm. Like, talking to someone around, you know, in high school now, even as a college student, it's really difficult.
1: Because of the rules that they're putting upon you or... Because yeah, the like narrowness the, of their thought?
0: The so, sort of social rules and what is considered, you know, um, polite and not polite. Like, etiquette's really changing. You know, assuming... And it's really,
1: like, it's really enforced, too. So it's very yeah. mutable and very... Uh, immu- uh, not immutable, but, like, to tell it... It's like the worst of both worlds. So it's always changing, uh, but you always have to be right or else you're screwed.
0: It's kind of like... I mean, like, there's a real reason why I think progressives tend to target children... I know that's a really weird way to put it, because I don't like to suggest that progressives are like, you know, predators of some kind, but so progressive ideas do well when you um, disseminate them amongst students, because kids are very clicky, kids are just naturally really clicky, and they're like sociopathic, they will bully each other, you know, like, I had a, you know, I, I went to school in 2016, and there were some Trump supporters at my school, and they got bullied, like, there was no way they could actually they couldn't have like a normal social life at school. There's no way mm. they would get mocked. I went to a majority, my school is majority black and Latino. So like, yeah, like the white Trump supporter kids definitely would probably were at risk of physical violence.
1: Oh yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I, I was taught that that was okay. And I thought that that was okay when I was about wait like,
1: taught the, by the, somebody with authority or just in your social group?
0: Oh, it's a mix, honestly. I think mm-hmm. we all kind of access the same sort of media. So we were all watching, like, The Daily Show, you know. Like, mm-hmm. I remember I used to record The Daily Show every night because I thought it was, like, subversive. Like, I don't know, to a teenager, The Daily Show is very subversive and new because it makes fun of all the people your parents support. So, yeah. yeah, I I was really into that. And, like, a lot of my friends were really into it. I know people campaigned. Because I'm, I'm from New Jersey, we, like, we're... You know, campaigning for, like, Phil Murphy, who was the new Democrat-elect governor. Uh, We were also doing stuff like the whole—we had anti-gun protests at my school, so we had a March for for Your Lives protest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was one pro-gun kid who brought, like, he brought his gun to school to, like—it was, like, a whole thing. Like, there was just so much conflict going on about, like, the culture wars really invaded my high school. It was, like, insane, you Mm -hmm. know? Oh, And I had taken – I was in model Congress and AP government in school, and it was just even worse there. You know, kids hated each other.
1: Oh, okay. So there was – well, this goes back to our original conversation. How do you have diplomacy? How do you start to form diplomacy in such an environment where one side is the devil, Mm -hmm. basically, and the other side is completely right and yet not really – thinking through its own position and enforcing these etiquette and then also changing the etiquette all the time. It seemed, it just doesn't seem like a stable situation at all. How would you conceive of starting to try to stabilize that? What's the middle path?
0: I think a lot of it is focusing on sort of non identity related. Um, it, it, it's, it's removing sort of like features of like identities as in like removing sort of like the, preoccupation with race, the preoccupation with gender, the preoccupation with like sort of respecting like these elements of identity and focusing more on like the innate things that we all have in common. Like, I don't know, like I'm sure me and that Trump supporter kid at my school, then high school, you know, I didn't particularly get along with him, but we probably have way, we probably had way more just general interest in terms of books that we like to read or like just TV shows that we like to watch. And like, that's like really something that you, that's like a human that's human value that get gets lost in a lot of the you know sort of like animosity there you know mm-hmm. like I went to a I remember my senior year of high school I went to a model Congress event where we were all split into different parties so there was a Democrat group, a Republican group and a libertarian group and these were all like fifth I think the youngest person there would have been 14 the oldest person there 18 and the Democrats the Democrat group we they hated the Republican group there was just so much animosity between the two. But I ended up getting a, I ended up being put in a really bad position because I did get along with a lot of the Republican kids. I really liked a lot of them, they're nice, they're funny, I thought that the Libertarian kids were funny, I thought that some of the perspectives they had on society were pretty entertaining, but you know, you can't really, like, making any sort of compromise with them was like frowned upon because of their beliefs and because of like the natural disagreements we had, so I don't know.
1: It seems like you're going to be forced out of progressive circles and being connected to the Democrat. Um, And do you you foresee yourself just gravitating towards more and more conservative ideas yourself? Because those are the only people that you can get along with and have conversations with? Or do you you foresee yourself having some sort of integrity beyond the clickishness, and how do you maintain integrity and all that social uh, whirlwind?
0: I think a lot of it is really learning to accept that you can't make everyone happy. And that's definitely something that I've like had trouble with, you know, like there's no way that I could, there's no way that I can continue to publish what I'd like to publish and then have everyone respect and like me. There will always be people that, Desperately dislike what I have to say. And that's something you just have to get over and move forward, you know, like to take the, you know, mature route and ignore it. And I think that's probably more productive. So, yeah, uh, it's really hard. I think a lot of I think there are a lot of people that tend to have like centrist beliefs or alternative left wing beliefs that end up being forced into conservative spaces, even if they are. I fundamentally, ideologically, at and like opposed to them, just because the conservatives are more inclined to allow for controversial discourse, you know.
1: Do you think that that might liberalize conservatism?
0: Oh yeah, but then with the liberalization of conservatism, you're going to see a really bad reactionary movement. I think.
1: Could you um, expound on that, please?
0: So another thing would be. Uh, there is probably, I think there is a growing uh, sector of like black conservatives. I think black conservatism is actually doing pretty well. It's, it's,
1: and Latino, growing. yeah.
0: Yeah, because I think a lot of black and a lot of like Latino people are realizing that like progressive ideas aren't necessarily compatible with the way that they want to live their life or the way that they see the world. But you know, you have like these white conservatives or white reactionaries absolutely rejecting the idea of like black conservatism so you know i think there's like a real notion or a fear of like great the great replacement or something like that among white reactionaries this concern that you know by allowing african-american or like just general minority um input into more reactionary or conservative spaces there it's therefore like then kind of like mutating the conservatives or like the reactionary movement into something that leans more progressive, I guess it's really weird. There are a lot of really weird beliefs. So
1: if there is, so we're talking about a, a specific content, well, let's just be very general for the moment, just to distill it down into chess pieces. If there is a a unit on the right that is based in identity just as much as uh the progressives are, but uh, in the one way that you're not supposed to, because it strikes fear into the hearts of Americans. Um, if they are somehow marginalized within the conservative ranks and even just kind of left out to dry, because the the, the game game theory is to make the most inclusive conservative party possible in order to win, you know, a stable uh, political position. Um, won't the marginalization of that one unit of the conservative just not really have much standing because it's not politically viable in the broader sense? Like, how do you see that as a a problem? Um, do you think that it will grow and grow and grow and grow and grow? And grow or do you think it, I, I, from my perspective, it's rather marginal. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe it's not. I know that there's discourse and stuff, but it's just not stay I just don't see it as being stable for a broader conservative coalition.
0: yeah, I think I think a lot of it has to do with how conservatism is kind of organized fundamentally. Okay. Um, I talk about it in that one essay on like the uh, difference between like time perception and conservatism and progressivism, and a lot of it has to do with conservatism relying on the preservation of um, a pre-existing social order or the idea that we must return to what was once was and then progressivism is more inclined to see the world as like a constant like they see everything as a straight line extrapolation of recent past and that we're constantly moving forward and i think that 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 is something that is that causes those like that's like a fundamental difference that kind of like leads into that problem. Like conservatism isn't something that can constantly grow. It's fundamentally, I think like antithetical to the beliefs of conservatism that we need to maintain this previous order. So constant expan- like there's always going to be conflict over expansion in conservative spaces, I think,
1: hmm. or ideological um, expansion. The, there's another conception of conservatism as progressivism with the brakes on. So, there is progress, but it's the the conflict against progress is what is slowing down progress so that human beings can adapt and then we can actually test whether these new uh, the, these new mu- mutations in the social environment can um are viable um over time right so it's not that uh, yeah the the trad I don't know what the Groypers think, but the hardline conception of conservatism as the retreat into the past, I think that that is a ideological pressure that's balanced Mm. against the pursuit of ultimate progress. And there's there's some sort of mixture of those two where you get a a massive amount of stability and not progress, but um, uh, opportunity for individuals to maximize their... uh, their potential uh, within uh, a a stable and yet slightly changing social environment. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, I think that's actually kind of why progressivism has been able to take such a hold on like kind of like the public, I guess, public sphere, public like just like thought, um, because conservatism will always be kind of like, will suffer from internal conflict from that, you know, there are there is the hardline traditionalists, the hardline conservatives, and then there are those to which conservatism means something that is a bit more cautionary or like cautious, right? And they will always be at conflict. And I think that itself is dilatory to any like conservative thought or conservative like productive progress. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Conservative hold on society. Yeah. You know, they can never agree on what conservatives should, conservatism should be, but progressives seem to be more inclined to be able to organize their thoughts into like one coalition.
1: Mm -hmm. But, but as we've been talking about, there's outliers and there's, there's problems within the progressive way of thinking. And, uh,
0: and I think the people that are rejected, they end up kind of falling to the way, either falling to the wayside, defaulting to a third party that is unable to gain real traction in like a partisan, the bipartisan system we have, or they end up kind of like, Subsumed by conservative thought and again conservative thought gets caught between that, you know Are we cautious of progressivism? or Are we anti progressivism? And there's like kind of like that's like a whole other dialogue that they have
2: Mm. Hmm.
0: so I don't really I don't know I feel like I definitely probably am more cynical of um, the discourse between like progressivism and conservatism and the capacity for conservatism to be um, At all kind of like mobilized in the same way progressivism has but there are probably people more optimistic than I am out there, so I don't know. Mm. I, I don't really see conservative, like I don't really see um, moderate beliefs becoming popular with people in my age group either. So I think that fringe beliefs get more encouraged.
1: Do you think you'll, you all will kind of chill out as you age, or are you just gonna? Do you think the internet's gonna be like this wonder drug and keep you guys on the edge of your seat for the next forty years?
0: Um. I think that a lot of people are probably going to make really poor decisions that they can't really take back. I think a lot of like progressive issues right now are sort of more severe than a lot of people realize and I think that there's going to be a real strong movement of like regret in the next 10 years. As as people in my age group reach adulthood, they're going to start regretting some of the things that they said or believed, I think.
2: Hmm.
0: As in like, you know, there are people that are cutting off family members for having beliefs that they see as being problematic or you know like overly conservative or reactionary and i think then 10 years we're going to see people really regret that and i think then you're going to see maybe more moderate beliefs come back into popularity Hmm. i think let's say for example like the whole recent push for you know gender constructivism um i I lend myself to the belief that people should be able to kind of like explore their gender identity to the extent that they want to. I don't think that there are any like basically I think it's protect gender identities protected as a negative right. You have the right to kind of dress the way that you want to in the United States. But at the same time now you have the medicalization of that. And you're seeing a lot of people go through procedures on a political like under a political like basis, you know, that are they can't take back.
1: You know the going back to generations the um, the boomers were formed in a very novel m- media environment. TV came along, uh, you know, their parents had radio, The parent, then there was the Great War. So there was this looming historical thing going on. There was communism and Americanism, uh, and uh, they grew up in a, in a specific environment. And then when they had their flowering in the late 60s and early 70s, they, you know, they, they did a lot of protesting, and they did a lot of activism themselves, and then they chilled out, and they got to work, uh, and then we had the 80s. And my generation, Gen X, we grew up in a specific media environment where we kind of defined our themselves in terms of really in terms of fashion in terms of art in terms of music not so much in political beliefs i mean political beliefs were uh, an accessory but they weren't the central thing and from speaking with you i'm skipping the millennials for the time being cuz you know whatever mm-hmm. Zoom, uh <laughs> but with your generation you really seem like the politicized generation. It seems like what we have done and the media environment that you... What what we have done, not intentionally, by focusing on certain things and what the internet has done by collating information in a certain way has turned everything about you all into politic, into... I guess I need to define what I mean by politic. Um, but it's all social status in a very... And, and it's always, always already been social status, but in a very, very recognizable, I I don't want to say shallow, but very surface level way. Mm. Um, And it it just seems like um, there's danger there. And there's worry from my generation for your generation. Um, And at the same time, it's wonderful to see people like you, uh, who are not represented because you, you aren't, um, crazy so we no. don't we don't make fun of you <laughs> um when when you make your tiktok videos i don't know i haven't gone through your tiktok so maybe i'm
2: i mean you talking
0: about media wise that's like something that they really really talk about in the fourth turning i think that was a book like the book that i brought up earlier um where uh i'm more relaxed now so i think i might be better able to explain it it's just that like the The fourth turning just ex- describes the last in a four-stage generational cycle that Strauss and Howe have like identified. So you know, the actual turnings are the high, the awakening, the unraveling, and the crisis. The crisis being the fourth turning, and the the crisis stage being what they suggest my generation is living through, which is, you know, so the generational high, like the um the social cycle of the high is when social institutions, political institutions are very strong and public individualism is very weak. So as like a collective entity, so like society is very confident about where it should go and where it should progress towards. But um, the those outside the sort of like center majority feel stifled by conformity and then as a new generational cycle comes to adulthood, then you enter the awakening era of like this, you know, four stage sort of like cycle where institutions are attacked in the name of like autonomy. Um, People are tired of social discipline. I think a good example would probably be kind of the transition between the 50s to the 60s. I think um, there's like a huge like social revolution there, you know. I think there's a huge sexual revolution, I think, which was a product of Um, those who had grown up in, like, a very conformist 50s culture, then reaching adulthood and really, like, really revolting against that. And then Mm -hmm. after that era, you have the unraveling in which um, institutions are very much weak and very distrusted. And I think for at least my generation, I grew up in that sort of unraveling, which would have been, like, the the economic collapse of 2008 where people my yeah. age grew up to see their parents like crying over you know their financial yeah. statements and then as my era reaches adulthood we're in the crisis stage and that's when you see a political generation that's interested in destroying institutional life and rebuilding it to a new paradigm and okay. that happened that's happened over and over again and Strauss and Howe are like historians that like basically analyze this and I think well, it's very really interesting
1: the The rhetoric that I'm worried about and, well, the behavior that I'm worried about is the disrupting and dismantling rhetoric that is now in my state of Washington being inserted into the state. The state itself is now we're going to destroy ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the it's very easy to topple things. It's very difficult to rebuild. Mm. And you can't, we cannot afford destroying things. Um. Completely, because of the amount of um, reliance we have on each other is phenomenal. And I think that a lot of people, especially in your generation, I don't mean to talk down to you, because it's also in my generation, we are not humanly capable of conceptualizing just how connected we are Uh, Mm -hmm. on an electrical grid nuclear power plants, the roadways, the, uh, you know, the globalization, we can't destroy, we can't just dismantle things. Yeah. So I, I really, um, it, it's, it's playing with fire, but at the same time, there might be hidden in your generation already a, a group of people who are hungry to get to rebuilding, who don't really care so much about the dismantling and can let it do its thing because you're more, you uh, Thirsting for the opportunity to build. Do you get that sense? Do you have that sense? Do you want to foster that sense?
0: Um, I don't know what rebuilding looks like. I guess to a mm-hmm. certain degree, because it depends on what institutions collapse. I think in the next yeah. coming decade. Um, so. But I you think, do
1: you see a collapse coming.
0: I do see. It. I think. A, I think a collapse is going to be inevitable. I think. Some, I genuinely sometimes worry that we're living through a second Weimar Republic. Oh <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. just because of the accelerated liberalism and then the you know reactionary response it's like kind of like gaining traction and sort of like the extreme political division the sort of kind of like I don't want to say it's like a secret police or something like that but like you know it's very difficult to kind of like discern government intention now I think that like it's definitely really worrying I think that a crisis is going to be inevitable at some point especially with the hyperinflation we're seeing post, pandemic so you know like I I I don't really know I'd be interested I mean like if I were to be you know an individual that was at all significant during what would be the you know rebuild of like institutions post like collapse I don't really know what I'd start with because I don't really know what will collapse, I guess. I don't know if it's going to be social institutions. I don't know if it's going to be economic systems like the financial institutions. You know, there's a lot of new, like, sort of, like, interest in decentralized finance, decentralized de- the decentralization of currency, the entire, revo- uh, like, a monetary system revolution, you know, and we saw that with, like, sort of, like, the battle between, like, the, mm. um, was it retail traders on Wall Street vets, kind of, like, trying to fight with like you know hedge funds Hedge funds, yeah yeah on robin hood like i don't know what inci- well, i don't know what sec- like institutional sector is going to fall first and i don't know what then the response would be i mean okay i think they're definitely people preparing for like an entire like societal downfall breakdown like you know civil war i don't really think people my age have like real the hard skills or like <laughs> technical skills needed to actually do anything of value. I've
1: seen the footage of Antifa, and I don't think that they'd really actually last in a fight where they were being fought back against.
0: Yeah, there was, like, the whole Chaz Chop thing that, like, developed in Seattle, and they had a garden, and, like, none of them had any basic gardening skills, like... What are they going to do in the next, like, I know, I've seen, like, a lot of communists talk about, like, how there's going to be a communist revolution, and, like, what jobs are people going to have in, like, the American communist system, like, we don't need diversity officers, I don't know if they realize that, like, you know, say what you will about, like, communist regimes, like, they do require a lot of technical skills to be productive, so we can't just have people who know how to write well,
1: Mm.
0: you probably need a lot of people who are working in, like, blue-collar labor, and they're not interested in communism.
1: Yeah. Actual communism doesn't have that many genders as uh, they imagine.
0: Yeah. It, a lot of communism is not anti-work and that's like, there's like a very weird anti-work movement associated with like really extreme, like left-wing beliefs in spite of the fact that most extreme left-wingers probably would really dislike those that were opposed to doing hard labor. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, There's a lot of
1: contradictions there.
0: I'm good at writing. I don't I, I don't have the technical skills to build a house, and I know that. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> it's okay, but that doesn't mean I'd support like a breakdown of society. I think right now we're seeing like a real social a breakdown of social institutions more so than like I think I think that the state and the financial sector are doing whatever they can to retain control. And I think that's really obvious in how like sort of like the Biden administration has been going a- about a lot of like the sort of like reactionary conservatives um they're doubling down on like capital like the militarization of the capital they're double and like they're expanding like sort of capital police presence in like florida for example because they see that as like being like a kind of breeding ground for like extreme beliefs extreme trump Mm. beliefs or something like that so yeah like clearly like they're individuals and within like kind of like the institutional like bureaucracy or whatever they they seem to see that there is like sort of like a real uh destabilization going on but they're less like they're more able to control that than like social institutions are
2: mm-hmm.
0: so yeah i mean, yeah
1: where are you gonna head what's up next what's in the what's in the works what's your grand plan who are you
0: in terms of rating
1: yeah. or in terms
0: of just well that's yeah. what you
1: want to be defined as so let's yeah. let's do that
0: Um, I think, well, I've been working on a few different pieces, but I'm not really sure where I'm going to focus on next. I think one essay that I've been working on was on black exceptionalism and the coherence of like American racial identity now. Um, But I'm like definitely afraid to publish it because I don't want to be called a racist or accused of being anti-black when I'm clearly, you know, mixed with black. So I don't have any sort of like inclination towards hating black people. But I do think that I think that recent. I think a lot of people have like tried to define, like, Black Lives Matter as being racial, racially supremacist. You know, there are a lot of conservatives, or at least a lot from within or without.
1: Okay, from without.
0: Yeah, a lot of like contrarians who tend to believe that like Black Lives Matter promotes like a black supremacist black black supremacist beliefs, but it's really not supremacy. I would say it's more exceptionalism—the idea that. African Americans are unique, unique in their historiography. They're a chosen people within like this nation state apparatus that their historical subjugation has made them a sort of chosen people. You know. It, it 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 runs in contrast to a lot of exceptionalist narratives that we've already seen before. Like there's German exceptionalism, Japanese exceptionalism, white American exceptionalism that we saw during the Manifest Destiny, like American kind of like Um, Mm -hmm. American West, but I think the black exception, like it's, it's hard to, like they, it's not able to kind of function in the same way because there's no credible avenue they have to suggesting that the United States is at its core a black state. So an exception, like an exceptionalist narrative within a pluralistic political landscape provides it kind of a more like unique narrative. So Hmm. the prescription of black exceptionalism is oriented around, like, politics of resentment or grievance. And it's constrained within a black versus white dichotomy. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So Hmm. that's probably something I'd be working on. That's, like, definitely something I'm really curious on because I see it as being, like, one of the most concerning elements of, like, contemporary political discourse. And one that I think a lot of writers are afraid to touch because of its racial implications. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I think you should definitely, um, while while not throwing caution to the wind or being reckless, definitely follow your curiosity. Uh, you have the beginnings of a uh, you, you you have the beginnings of somebody who could actually bring discourse to places where it hasn't gone yet, and that's the most important thing in discourse: is to go there.
0: Yeah, like with the last essay I wrote on you know CRT, I was like really actually quite nervous to publish it because I was very worried that it wouldn't be well received by the left and it would get the attention from people on the right. I wasn't necessarily interested in receiving attention from, you know, like there's a very hard line that I'm trying to toe between being sympathetic, being seen as sympathetic to white supremacist beliefs, and being sympathetic to progressive beliefs. When I'm sympathetic to I'm pretty neutral between them I, I don't know I think the whole CRT Conversation in schools is sort of insane But It it needs to be legitimized In conversation as in like opposite Like there needs to be like legitimate contrarian Like or like oppositional discourse That isn't oriented around just being a Like a white reaction So mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and yeah. it's actually the actual Reaction is not a white reaction It's uh it's a liberal reaction. Uh, yeah. There's people across races uh, to that are manifesting discontent with the uh, indoctrination nation of our education.
0: Yeah, I think it's definitely getting... Um, I think a lot of progressive liberals are really denying the fact that, like, critical race theory or critical theory in general is, like, kind of making its way into K-12 through education. And I think the public reaction or the liberal reaction—you're seeing the silent majority finally react to it because people really don't like having their children be indoctrinated. People really don't like things once it starts to affect their children. So,
1: well, I mean, this is this is two sides um, to this particular thing. Even if the parents win over the teachers' unions or you know the bureau. Uh, Diversocrats that are uh, setting up shop in the schools as we've pointed out in this conversation y'all are policing each other pretty hardcore uh, yeah. and forcing each other to you know step up or shut up uh which is a whole other uh ball game but at least uh, providing a place for um honest education and a neutral place for you um you and and younger people to get skills and to learn how to debate and uh, to approach conversations is better than having an indoctrinated uh, education system as well as an indoctrination uh, social uh, milieu.
0: Yeah, I think if something like a CRT-based curriculum gets legitimized, um, you're going to see a lot of enabling of that sort of animosity between students. I think it's just going to further enable that sort of bullying or like that sort of like kind of like clicky ideological behavior. And like mm-hmm one thing that's, like, really, like, kind of scary, too, is that, like, if, because the whole point of K through 12 education is to provide students with hard skills, or, like, technical skills that will serve them well in their university, and in their career beyond university, but if CRT is being proposed, or, like, promoted as being sort of college prep, then what does that say about universities, you know, like, to be indoctrinated into, or, like,
1: mm, okay, I see in, what you're saying.
0: In, yeah, if, if if students... It's must like a be- prereq
1: to get along with the university environment is to uh, know how to think along these terms.
0: Yeah, and I think it says really horrible things about, like, the standards of academia right now. Very concerning hmm. things. I think that, like, you know, there is too much interpersonal sensitivity is getting hyper-encouraged, and, like, the fact that, like, hmm. racial sensitivity and racial theory is, like, considered college prep really, I think, speaks to a sort of like derailing of academic, like real academic goals or material, tangible academic goals. I mean, numeracy, I think I wrote in my article that numeracy and literacy rates in this country are like honestly dwindling. You know, I think of 300 million or so American, 330 million or so Americans in the country around, like a generous estimate, it's like about 50 million or so, 43 million read below a third grade level.
1: And that's uh, adults. That's adults. Yeah. yeah.
0: And it's the, I mean, those adults, there's nothing preventing those adults from having children. You know, like we don't live in a country where people are sterilized on the basis of IQ, which would be horrible in and of itself, but at the same time, that sort of get, lends itself to these students, Like they, their children growing up in homes or their parents are illiterate, okay. you know, and they're going to school and everything they learn like they're being, you know, taught sort of ideology rather than technical skills that they can, you know, actually. Yeah.
1: They're they're being taught to change the world, not necessarily to understand it, which yeah. is not necessarily a recipe for success.
0: You know, I I, I did terribly in calculus in high school, mm. but I was shocked. Like, you know, I thought I was going to be the worst, like the most, you know, like numerically Ill- illiterate person at my university because I got a D in calculus my senior year of high school and then I found out there were so many people who didn't even take, like, they, they didn't even take, you know, like, they didn't even take calculus. Like, that's not a, that's not a standard anymore and and this isn't to say that, you know, everyone must understand calculus to, like, an extreme degree and, like, you know, you need to be extremely, like, mathematically literate but, like, the fact that, like, those skills aren't being prioritized relative to, like, you know, AP government or, like, understanding, like, racial discourse, I, I think that's, like, really sad. You know, I think it's really sad that a lot of people, under like, really struggled with understanding statistical information at my school, but had no issue writing about, at length, about, like, racial inequity.
1: Hmm. Which, like, really scary. how do you understand that without statistical understanding, other than, uh, I guess, you understand it ideologically, not statistically?
0: Yeah, I think you're ending up with a lot of university students who only understand things on an ideological level. They don't really understand things on an objective level. So, and man, I had a class session that was on plural. I had a class on pluralism and we had, we had to discuss um, marketing techniques, I think at some point as in like marketing techniques for certain um, political interests, I guess. And we were just talking about, you know, like that sort of those sort of politics in a pluralist society. And one of the, um, it was on racial insensitivity in ads. Or something like that. At some point, got to that, and we were discussing how, like, is it okay for X group to appropriate um, racial identity or appropriate some other element of identity in order to further some other goal, even if that goal is productive or good, ostensibly? And I think we had to analyze an ad on, like, it was like a Hagen dots ad on protecting the bees, and like the guy in the video was dressed as a Jamaican man. Like, he, it was, like, a white guy dressed Jamaican. He was rapping in a, uh, a Jamaican accent. And, you know, this campaign that the Hagen did, like, they, they, organize, they were able to organize and raise several million dollars for, like, a Save the Bees sort of initiative. And people in my class were, like, mocking and laughing at it because that one ad was racially insensitive, you know? Mm. And I think I spoke up in class and said that I thought, in spite of its racial insensitivity, it was actually quite, like, Effective. It was really effective and it worked quite well and it was to broadly were like the material benefits of it were immutable, I think, or like inarguable, but then this one girl got really angry with me and said that I was allowing for cultural appropriation. I don't think she realized I was Jamaican, so I didn't really, Yeah. yeah, I didn't actually care. I don't look visibly, I think black, so like a lot of people really got, would assume that I was Asian and get really mad at me. And like that's what i mean when kids are learning like they're not learning to think objectively they're learning to think in terms of ideology they think they need to prioritize their ideology over like actual productivity Hmm. it's kind of insane you know like they Hmm. and, and and with like dwindling like 43 53 or so million people reading below the eight below a third grade level was concerning enough as is but then that is sort of like a my you know, that, that sort of speaks to how many people are reading below like an eighth grade level. It makes me really curious about that. How many people are reading below a 12th grade level and like to some degree, you know, are there people proliferating these sort of like, um, really left progressive ideas that actually, like, are there definitely people that just Parrot these as you know bullet points. Do they actually understand what they're saying? Do they understand the implications of what they're saying?
1: Well, and and to what to what degree do they understand it? To what degree can they conceptualize and think through it? If a sixth grade level, eighth grade level, twelfth grade level, a master's degree level? Yeah,
0: I think it was Abigail Schreier who talked about it, that where it was like the average sort of eighteen year old now has like the mental and emotional capacity of a fifteen year old in nineteen eighty. And that's I think that says a really, really terrifying things about, you know the sort of material being published by like universities now. like mm. they're like in some respects, it feels like they're publishing the work of like people who are technically underskilled and also emotionally underskilled or emotionally um, underdeveloped. Mm. So I don't really know. I feel like that's probably a massive problem. You have diversity officers that can't read very well, actually. And that's mm. not.
1: So you how, how much more of this uh, schooling are you going to put up with?
0: I Pro- I probably what I can do to get my degree. So yeah, I'll probably oh, yes. get a degree and then I'm considering higher education, grad school. I think there's way more freedom at the grad school level now um, than there is at the undergraduate level. So I had hmm. to take an evolu- I had to take an evolutionary anthropology class hmm. or or environmental anthropology course. And I just, I had so much trouble in that class because I, I, we were talking about Foucault and like, you know, whether or not like living in a technologically like underdeveloped society is actually happier because we're not destroying the environment or something like that. And I just, I couldn't keep up with the logic of the class and I didn't do very well. So, you know, like I made the argument that like, you know, living in like a sort of like primitive society, like the more like, not dying of, you know, say, like, the common cold is actually, like, really great, you know, I really enjoy, like, the Mm -hmm. technological, like, benefits that we have now, the, like, you know, medical technology we have in, like, a developed society, and my professor was like, well, well, would you really be, like, what if you just didn't know that existed, though, like, if you live in a primitive society, you wouldn't know about penicillin, so you wouldn't know that's an option, and therefore wouldn't you have a happier life, And I was just very, I just, like, couldn't keep up in the class.
1: Wait, they were, wait, they, so their argument was that ignorance is bliss?
0: Yes, in a certain And and
1: this is a professor (laughs) arguing for ignorance.
0: (laughs) It was an anthropology course, so the whole thing was to be relativistic in the way that we understood primitive societies and to not be judgmental of, like, their, I guess, failings Mm -hmm. relative to developed society. But at a certain point, when are you just lying to yourself? Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: You know, like. Yeah, you know, the people living in African tribal communities who aren't aware of like antibiotics, are they living a real be- are they living a better life because they're ignorant?
1: Well, do you have to go to the next level and say, if you want to argue their point for them, say, well, why don't we just start, instead of reverting to primitive society, why don't we just malnourish children so they don't have the capacity to know what they're missing out on? Yeah. So they, they can't develop beyond a certain mental capacity.
0: Yeah. And that's how I got like a C in that class. It definitely is very hard to write. Like I would just, we had to do like different responses and I just couldn't keep up with like the... Rationale for like, sort of like.
1: You Wait, know. so he, he, it was basically a training and a certain rationalization. It wasn't a a place where you could argue. You actually got demerited for thinking differently than they wanted. Yeah,
0: to think. as in like, I, I, it was kind of like I feel like I definitely got portrayed as like not understanding the material particularly well. And it wasn't that I didn't understand the material; I just disagreed with the basis in which it was written.
2: Okay. Yeah. And
0: I felt like I couldn't argue that at all. We had to read an article about like kind of like how Western colonialism brought alcoholism to um, uh, Zimbabwe, former Rhodesia. And it was just kind of like, okay, at what point are African people unable to be considered individuals with agency to make decisions, you know, like to like, you know, I, I made the suggestion that we couldn't attribute alcoholism in like, you know, colonial communities to like colonialism itself, and then I got shot down for that, or told that I wasn't understanding the article quite well, and it was just, no, I'm disagreeing with the basis in which the article was written, but you couldn't make that argument at all. You
1: know. How do you, what do you do with, are you, like, zen in those moments? Do you get, like, really frustrated, and what do you do with your frustration? Or are you just zen?
0: I, like, I call up my mom. at <laughs> the <That's laughs> My mom is, like, my mom is, like, 60, so she... She's much older than my professor. My professors are probably, would be described as millennials, a lot of them.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, like, I, I just honestly think that millennial politics is going to cause an insane, like, right-wing reaction from people, like, younger than me or around my age. Because I also had another philosophy professor tell me that he would prefer a Senate that was all female. Because women are less inclined to war or discrimination. <laughs> this was like someone that would like someone with a like a really like developed career in philosophy so it was just kind of like ooh, like this is a state of academia right now this is someone yeah to- i was
1: when you're saying about considering going to uh grad school because maybe there's more freedom i'm sorry to break it to you girl i think it's i think it's elephants all the way up
0: <laughs> i thought i just thought that like grad students would be more inclined to disagreement because at least at the like at the undergrad level i feel like you're everyone is just trying to get a degree you know, just what do you to think get the
1: master's degree students are doing? I'm sorry. I think you know when we were talking about failing institutions, academia is uh, with the with the state of the federal loans and all that stuff, and the infrastructure and the and admin bloat, and then the subpar offerings, and then how they're actually treating teachers uh, both ideologically and with uh, just denying tenure i just it's rickety it's rickety to the extreme especially with a bunch of smart people Mm -hmm. getting kicked out or avoiding it um there will be an alternative at some point i don't know what we're going to do about accreditation um, and in-person learning but there will be Mm -hmm. uh, there will be uh That will be the most, uh, if if we could just destroy anything and rebuild it, I think the best thing to do would just be academia. I think we could get away with it, and it wouldn't be that big of a deal. It wouldn't, like, Mm -hmm. nobody would die. People would just have to actually learn skills that are Did you
0: hear about the Austin Tong case? I think his name is Austin Tong. It went viral on Fox News over the summer. Um, uh, How do you
1: spell the last name?
0: P-O-N-G.
1: Okay. Austin Tong.
0: Let me see if I can find him too. Yeah, he 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 was like basically like um <laughs> he goes to my university. Um, he's about he was a year older than me, and he ended up getting into like really like extreme trouble at my university because he posted a photo of himself holding a AR-15 of some kind um, during the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square um, massacre because he was a Chinese immigrant or he's a Chinese immigrant and he just really wanted to celebrate the fact that like the immigrating to the United States he was given like the right to protect himself I guess and people at my school reported him and I think school police actually showed up to his home in Connecticut and it, it turned into a massive, like, legal battle. And, you know, he was able to kind of, like, really profit off of it because of, like, the, you know, a lot of people on Fox News really took on his, like, you know, his narrative as, like, a grift. But, like, it, it kind of says a lot about, like, education hmm. now. I think that a student could be, could get into trouble for possessing a gun. Um, I think he was, he got in trouble on the basis of promoting bias and hate crimes. <laughs>
1: what? Yeah, by standing up to the CCP. Yeah, <laughs> or giving them the middle finger. It was bad, like,
0: and I, I honestly think it was. I, I just think it was bullying because I, he mm-hmm. was on student government, and I was the head of a few clubs that year, so I was kind of involved in student government, but only to the extent I had to go to them for administrative things, um, and. A lot of the people in student government hated him. They hated him as a person. They just didn't like him because he was really conservative. Like he was a well, very-
1: yeah. He came yeah. from communist freaking China. Yeah, like he like
0: he is shockingly very pro capitalist, pro like American, like with, yeah, yeah. He loves it. And like now he like they just hated this kid. And they saw that yeah. he posted a gun, and they thought that he was threatening the non like the liberal kids at my school. They thought that. Basically, the progressive kids at my school thought that he was, like, threatening them, especially during Black Lives Matter, that it was a a threat against African-American students, which is, like, really funny because, like, Austin is pretty nice. Like, I I genuinely don't I genuinely don't think he actually cares at all about racial issues. I think he just really wanted to show off his gun. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, he got suspended from school and everything.
1: Oh, and then he sued?
0: He sued and then the judge dismissed his case oh okay so it didn't really go I don't think it went anywhere and it didn't go anywhere in his favor yeah well um
1: I I it we should wrap up the episode because it is an episode (laughs) and um I can't sing your praises high enough you belong with you should definitely consider submitting your articles uh to magazines and online places they are a little headier than the normal stuff, which I love. Um, so you're gonna have to figure out the right publication. But you are a uh, rising star. You are absolutely a rising star. You, um, I, I'm gonna look back on this episode and say I, I, I had her here first.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that means a lot. I'm really grateful that a lot of people. Oh, I'm really grateful that my writing's really resonating with people. It means a lot. I'm glad that people feel the
1: same way. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.